remember our dinner, our fabulous steak dinner in Denver. And you made this very prophetic statement. I remember as we were pulling into the Gaylord Rockies, would you repeat that for the audience? Because it still stuck with me. As best as I can remember, it it goes something like, you can have one of two primary approaches to solving issues. One is you can be primarily focused on uh, maximizing human flourishing, or you can be focused on minimizing human impact. Welcome to The Herd, and thanks for listening. We're happy to help you have informed conversations with your healthcare providers. But please do not treat anything we say in this or any of our episodes as medical advice. Even when the guests are physicians, they're not your physician. If you enjoy this sodcast, please like it, share it, give it a good rating, and follow, and help more people find their way into the Ruminati herd. If you have suggestions for improvements, please let me know. Howdy, everybody. Welcome to this episode of Meet Your Herdmates Sodcast. Today, I am so pleased to be joined by Ted Eaton. Eton. Hi. Hi. Sorry. <laughs> Hi, it's Ted. Fine. Thank, yeah. thank you for your patience. Um, so, one, we need to know that Ted is a physician, family practice, medicine specialist, I guess. Um, you live in Washington, D.C. We met over a year ago now, is it? Or about a year San ago. Diego 2017, my friend. Oh, that long ago. Mm-hmm. Because I had in mind the, the dinner that I just saw a picture of um, from what Denver, which would have been last year. Which was year. also amazing. Yeah. 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 Boy, things have changed. Anything changed? Anything happened since then? Um, <laughs> so, um, and, and what we started talking about at that point was aspects of sustainable healthcare and sustainability in healthcare and the nexus between food production and uh, consumption. And then these other things that I really hadn't paid much attention to or known much about or realized that anybody was interested in. So um, I'm really grateful that you would be available to join in this conversation today. Thanks for having me. Um, So, okay, a little bit about you so that people will understand. Um, Where did you grow up? I am from Phoenix, Arizona, um, the Grand Canyon State. Um, And I am a specialist in family medicine, so I would say... If I were to describe myself and maybe some of the twists, uh, the unique or semi-unique aspects of me, I, I've trained in a very mainstream medical culture with a with a medical school residency fellowship, all that kind of stuff. I think family medicine, um, when they say family doctor, is also a twist, and I think the general public doesn't realize family medicine physicians are trained very differently than internal medicine physicians. We're all primary care. But family medicine, um, the quip is it's especially a breath, not depth, which is actually wrong. The truth is it's especially a depth of a person and all the things that make them who they are. And that's why family medicine physicians tend to be, they tend to be in large numbers at some of the conferences we go to, 
internists come as well, but it's kind of a different tribe where we're always on the lookout and search for how does someone, what are the determinants of health of a person, family, community, society? That's how we think. We think about people in their normal daily lives. You don't think about them with chronic illnesses as opposed to an internist who's mostly trained in the hospital, mostly thinks about the depth of very complex conditions and they're very good at it and they're great colleagues of ours. But there's just a, a little difference. I think people need to know about that. We're, we're trained as much as each other. We have the same amount of training and all that kind of stuff. There's that. The other thing about me that's, that has really affected me and actually part of my, my presence in this movement is that I trade during the AIDS crisis which was probably the, the worst, the most challenging ethical crisis in the medical profession's history of all time. You know, a time when you could walk into a hospital and doctors would refuse to take care of patients. It's, it's, it's unfathomable today, but I saw it with my own eyes. I saw the way doctors treated each other that treated these patients. I mean, something you never forget. And what, what, you, what you come away from going through all that and in a, in a space where you look around and no one's saying anything. You know, it's the norm kind of thing. Mm -hmm. It's very similar to what I see today in the, in the community of metabolic health because people are going to their doctors and their doctors lack curiosity. It's the same kind of thing. And so when you talk about all the people that we, um, inter the tribes that we're all a part of, if I were to say anything, um, it's not about whether they need to know this or that about metabolic health. It's really about, are they able to embrace curiosity? Because we've all looked into the eyes of our colleagues and said, hey, that, that doesn't look right, like, that doesn't look like we were taught. And you just see their eyes glaze over, like, well, who cares? And I think what I saw in my training was a bunch of doctors that said, who cares about a bunch of people? So that, that happened. Um, and then I'm a, I'm, um, I'm a minority myself, so I'm a gay man in medicine, so I'm always a little different. So here I come to this movement um, with that background, that training, and I see a lot of similarities. I see, you know, a minority population a population trying to work with clinicians that sometimes don't understand them or not are not curious about how they got there. And then clinicians who are refugees themselves, mm -hmm. who are doing things a little bit differently, but are so passionate. Um, and it's, it's the parallels are very, very striking, which is, um, mm -hmm. it's a cool place to be. And I would probably say, um, it found me versus me finding it. Interesting. I've, I've been so struck by hearing stories of how uh, medical professionals who were treating someone, the patient is telling the story of how they were the, the, I'll say doctor fired them as a patient because they were exploring something that seemingly was giving them positive results, but it was against what their doctor had been saying all along. And I'm like, you do that. I, I, I find that just a striking situation. I'm also impressed by the way you describe family medicine. Um, it's sort of the way forage agronomists have to, uh, not, okay, I'm stretching the metaphor, but we have to pay attention to more than just plant yield. We have to pay attention to nutritive value and growth cycles and palatability and, and how we control. And I mean, there's lots and lots of factors that go into a successful grazing operation. And there's more to human health than what we eat. Um, so I, it, I, I hadn't realized that difference between family medicine and, and other essential disciplines. Um, so... And, and you started, 
you started your practicing life about how long ago? You said in 91, I believe, kind of that time frame. Is that? So, yeah, I went to medical school in the 90s. Okay, um, okay. that's that's fair uh, enough. You know, that, that, yeah. So I am on, a, so I would also say I am on a, I am on a low carb diet, which is why I look so young. Um, uh, just kidding. So I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Well, um, I was born I, in the 50s. So <laughs> uh, I would say, I want to say also, I am not an advocate or activist for, for a specific diet. Um, I think people, you know, I'm, I, what I, what I'm an advocate for is people controlling their own life destiny. Mm-hmm. And that includes me not telling them what to eat and vice versa. And again, it's the same theme. It's like, so I, you know, I, I grew up in a profession where people were told what their life destiny was going to be by people that didn't know them. And I think we're seeing uh, the ability for people to decide that for themselves in consultation with, and if we have time, I can tell, I can tell a positive story. I can tell my own physician who I expected to do some of the things you, you said, who did exactly the opposite, which has floored me. Oh, perfect. And I think it's good to talk about the stories where things are changing. Mm-hmm, absolutely. Um, so w- one of the, the aspects of this whole space is the difference between rural and suburban urban, um, between high income countries and low and middle income countries as we look across this. Um, but you mentioned um, metabolic disease, metabolic health, let's put it positively. Uh, we know that we're facing a tremendous challenge in um, certainly in North America, but it's not just North America, um, where if you believe some of the statistics, it might be fair to say that statistically speaking today, you're more likely as an adult to be, to not have optimal metabolic health. Um, So normal now may be sick from a statistical point of view which is kind of a remarkable condition, but how would you know? Um, Where would you go for information? How would you begin the process? Might be some questions, but I can very much appreciate not being an advocate. Um, I'm very tired of us and them in so many spheres. I very much want to get us to, um, well, how would I know if I'm, you know, part of the 88% that don't enjoy optimal metabolic health or the 12% that do? What, what sorts of things might, uh, uh, pieces of information might maybe perk my interest a little bit? Yeah, I mean, I would say, you know, coming to this, you know, I came to this uh, for vanity reasons. I wanted to feel better, look better, perform better athletically and all that kind of stuff. And you know, like, and I met you when I met you and others, and I would say that like the 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 reason why we are all bonded is because our professional obligations are boundless. You know, we're we're not just thinking about the fact that I'm a physician or you're agronomist. You're thinking about the planet and all the people on it, and I am as well because we are we are inextricably linked, and that is the beautiful thing about our about pr- the professions in general, specialty regardless, is that we are not beholden to be in just our space and. So I come to this and I learn more and more and I say, wait a minute, you know, these are things that this is not just about, you know, having a few less inches on your abdomen. This is about your ability to live your life pain-free, disease-free, and then for the 
clinicians will talk about will talk about sustainability for their ability to enjoy their profession. And right now, I mean, let's I just want to just heap on a ton of respect for the three million nurses in this country, the million physicians in this country who are literally dying to prevent other people from dying. We are in an unsustainable state of healthcare and we need to be in that state right now. Healthcare needs to do everything it can and we need to save healthcare. That's what we're doing every day. We wear our masks and all that other stuff. So um, with, with great respect to all of the people, um, the system that, we, that brought us here didn't tell us those things. And I think it's almost like a resignation, like this was supposed to happen. And then you look up and you say, you realize, you know, the solutions to these problems are, are these problems are huge and the solutions are not ginormous either. And it's, they're not in this room. I can go to Forge Agronomist and learn about soil um, and learn about uh, ruminant agriculture and learn where my food came from. And that alone may make me a better doctor and a more satisfied doctor wanting, I mean, I, you meet people that are doing this work and they just can't wait to go to work every day. And they're busier than they ever have been. And you know why? Because everyone wants to be successful, not for themselves, but for the people they take care of. Um, so we are in a state where most people don't know they have metabolic disease. You typically don't get measured for it when you go see the doctor. And I'm on, you know, I'm, I'm in several Facebook groups with physicians talking about the, the day's events. And occasionally people talk about, you know, how they stay well and healthy. And some of the stuff they're posting, I have to say, is completely based on, you know, 30-year-old concepts of what nutrition is supposed to be, where food comes from. Um, and I, you know, I've coined this decade, last decade, I called the decade of the patient, because in my world, that was the decade where patients rose up and said, we want our data. We want to know what's going on. Cancer patients, HIV patients. This, this I call the decade of data over dogma because we are not just empowered, but we are empowered to know science at the same level as a physician, if not better. Um, we're empowered to not have conflict of interest. So we, we can have the credibility of anyone that's training in the field for 10 years by virtue of our steadfastness and our ability to you know, know right from wrong. And I know there's things about a physician that you can't replicate in a non-physician about knowing how, how people react to things and stuff like that. There's, that's definitely there. But we think about data over dogma um, we can free ourselves from some of the stuff that you and I both see that's not really based in science. And there's there's parts of our worlds where the science just stops. And you ask yourself, what happened? And you peel the layers back and it's like someone was told something a long time ago and they just, it just wasn't a priority to, to get that right. Yeah, and, and sometimes science can't give us all the answers given ethical realities yes. and limitations of what science can do. And that's not a, you know, that's not bad. It's reality. And what we then can do is say, what's right for, as you say, the patient, what, how do we kind of bring it back to individual as opposed to one size fits all top down, you know, kind of system, which I would argue hasn't worked all that well. No, no. And, and recognizing that science has limitations. I think there's this space where, and, and you and I both know the history that um, it's, it's, it's been decided by some that science has settled on nutrition on what's supposed to be. 
And you look at how that science has been done and not very well. And I think everyone, everyone in that space acknowledges it, that it has not been done well. Um, the consumers of that don't know that, unfortunately. And so I think within the circles, these are brilliant scientists that know the limitations of everything they've done, that it's, it's dirty science to an extent. Um, actually, I would say that one of the great things about meeting you, Peter, is that it feels like, and maybe it's grass is always greener, but it feels like in your space, <laughs> maybe you'd say it's not that, not, that's not true, but it feels like when it's not in your field, it feels like it's way more, people have come to you and say, oh, healthcare, you've got it all together. I'm like, no, wait a minute, you have it all together. So it feels like, you know, in the forge agronomy space, maybe there's more humility or maybe there's more, it seems more data-based in some ways, and maybe I'm wrong. Um, but maybe if you, when you look across, when you look over the over the fence, maybe you see the bright spots better than in your own backyard. Well, I guess um, two of my mentors I got to ride around with for a while, several days, a pickup truck, looking at the countryside go by. It felt like I was back in my oral exam and I hadn't studied, you know, one of those nightmares. Um, but I said, have you ever, and they have traveled widely. And I said, have you ever been anywhere in the world where you looked at, or certainly in North America and, and looked at the, the countryside going by and haven't thought to yourself, look at the potential. Because we, there's been decades and decades and decades of research. And, and I mean that by uh, generations of researchers. And if we could apply that we would see even greater things than what we're currently seeing. So in that way, that that's one of the things that I see. And, you know, there's, uh, I'm not blind to the challenges that the industry that I was trained to serve faces, um, but I also um, value what is being done by people every single day as as you say i mean um quite literally people are in a high risk occupation to produce the food that i can go to the supermarket and buy mm -hmm. uh, for a remarkably low price so um the it, it's i i guess that's an interesting way to look at things and i hadn't considered that before um, I guess one of the things that I could say is, and I've said this publicly, and that is consulting nutritionists and veterinarians get fired every single day um, from livestock operations, right? Because the expected performance wasn't achieved, right? Um, you know, so the, the nutritionist designs a ration, uh, tests all the feedstuffs, constructs a ration and, and then all of a sudden milk yield drops. And it's probably not a winning strategy to blame the cow. Um, Interesting. So, so, that, that, so that, that's very good knowledge for this audience that are medical practitioners because it's very similar to the business of medicine, you would say. So these, these same kinds of incentives can crop up. So I like what you're saying. It's quite, sort of like the knowledge is there somewhere it's not, it's not that it's not known what the right thing is to do, but is it applied universally? And there's great, great potential. And I think that's why this collaboration, a collaboration like this is so useful because we can point out, oh, that's very similar to the problems we have over here or slightly different. And we've solved this over here. And gee, if we could really apply what we know and what you know, 
I mean, we're headed to a good place. Hmm. Absolutely. And I certainly hope that we can continue to build bridges between these silos. Um, so, yeah. Um, so let's just, if we can, you know, climb in the time machine and go back to, let's say, January, um, where uh, we were looking, you know, or maybe even, you know, 12 months ago, and, and look at the state of the, what were the biggest burdens on the healthcare industry in United States? And is it, it's fair to say, I think that it, they're the non-communicable diseases were, and which means metabolic diseases, yes? Yeah, I mean, if you look at, you know, the major causes of death are all mostly, I mean, this is my aha too, that most doctors don't know this. You know, you see diabetes, I don't know what number it is, but everything above it is probably related to that. And most people don't realize that. So again, I see post people saying, you know, I have a diabetic and what more, what, what additional drugs should they be on? And I want to, and I have it, I want our back. Well, what are they eating? You know, are you asking about that? And that's not the place that we go to. So we're in a very, um, again, before 12 months ago, uh, we're in a place where the information that physicians have access to is, is largely not given by unbiased sources. And let me, let me give a story. When I was um, researching some of the work of Ansel Keys and some of his detractors, I happened upon the New York Medical Society Journal of 1956, and it's on the internet. And I saw one of the, I saw the paper I was looking for, but I also saw the advertisements in there mm. Mm. blew my mind. There was advertisements from the wheat industry, from the dairy industry, from the vegetable oil industry, from pharma. And, and this is 1956. And they were saying stuff like, have your patients eat, be on a low fat diet. We know the vegetable oils are good for you. And what I realized there is that nutritional information has always been part of our curriculum, but it's just not coming from scientists. It's coming from industry. And so the place where we're 12, 12 months ago is that the, this has been such a kind of a, it's, it's, it's not a big money maker for medicine. Hmm. So that space is occupied by industry and that's how we people get their education. And so the burden is chasing these um, really difficult illnesses um, with non-lifestyle interventions, with pharmaceutical interventions. And now 12 months later, we're talking about non-pharmaceutical non, non interventions because it's all we have. So isn't that great? That's good though, because we, we're doing everything we can for this thing. You look at um, uh, uh, fatty liver, there's no pharmaceutical intervention for that. There's only lifestyle, similar thing. And you see a system that's just, it's been crushed by the weight of these conditions. Um, and the cost for the pharmaceuticals is off the charts. Um, the impact on the environment of those pharmaceuticals is off the charts. The impact of going to the doctor is off the charts. All of that comes together in a very unhappy, unhealthy way, sadly. So you, the, you mentioned the environmental impact of pharmaceuticals. Where does that show up and what kind of impact is that? Well, um, you know, it's helpful. What, what's helpful for me, I actually, I actually have gone and calculated my own personal carbon footprint because it, it's helpful to do it as a person about yourself 
because what you, and you can do that. So the, the United Nations has a pretty good calculator, but interestingly, the calculator does not include healthcare utilization, which is 20% of our GDP. So I, I actually fudged it a little bit. Um, but what I found in my own, for example, carbon footprint calculation is that I do not have diabetes. I don't have pre-diabetes. And but that alone saves me two, two metric tons of carbon a year from medications only. And just as a comparison, a uh, metric ton of carbon you would burn if you ate meat for a year compared to being a vegan, you burn a metric ton of carbon by flying one transcontinental flight. And my total carbon footprint, I think is around 20 metric tons or American, imagine American is like 16 to 18 metric tons. So two metric tons just from pharmaceuticals, just for diabetes, just pharmaceuticals, not to mention travel back and forth to the doctor, not to mention any other, uh, any other intervention you might need to do to stay healthy, other costs, depression, others, other stuff connected to that. That's like really significant. Um, owning a car is two and a half metric tons. So mm. I don't own a car. So um, I, have a, I have a pretty good carbon footprint. I do eat meat, but on balance, it's, it's less. Right now, again, I want a caveat. We, we're going to put a ton of carbon in the atmosphere to create the pharmaceuticals we need to survive this thing. Mm -hmm. And I think that's healthcare sweet spot. I mean, this is what pharmaceutical companies are made for. They are meant to dig us out of deep holes like they're doing now. You could argue 12 months prior, um, that's probably not the best use of resources to have them creating a group of pharmaceuticals that are, may not be as matched as food in terms of efficacy that are very difficult to make, um, very hard to transport. Um, the carbon footprint, again, 12 months ago, the, of the pharmaceutical industry is greater than that of the automotive industry. And people don't, people don't realize that. So again, healthcare talks about carbon footprint in terms of electricity use, which it should, waste, water, et cetera, but not about the, the use of, of healthcare uh, operations and all the things that go into it, which is, it, which is massive. And so it's, it's interesting to me, and one thing that I'd like more people to become aware of, and thank you for that, is when we talk about the footprint of or sustainability of food systems, it doesn't stop with the product that's been produced. It continues all the way through the health of the consumers. Right. And somehow we've stopped it too soon, which then allows us to have conversations that might lead somebody to talk about carbon-free sugar, for example, <laughs> in their advertising, which just blows my mind. Um, if only from the organic chemistry point of view that says, how do you make sugar without carbon? I mean, what the heck is this about? Um, so I, I think that's really important. Obviously, it's critical to have pharmaceuticals to treat, but to treat, not to maintain or prolong or whatever the right word is. I mean, I'm, I'm struck by the story of the first human being that was actually treated with penicillin. And he was dying of basically, I think, sepsis. He is either a postman or a policeman in England, London, I think. And he scratched his face on a rose bush in his garden. And that had become infected. And then that had become systemic. And so, I mean, they were basically, you know, it's 
whatever late thirties. And they're like, well, what's the worst that can happen? <laughs> you know, like different standards then. So they, they give him, they give him the drug penicillin and he starts to improve, but they have so little that they're actually taking his urine and isolating penicillin wow. back out of his urine so that they, and he got better but not all the way. And they didn't have enough to complete the course and he still died. And that was only like 90, you know, less than 90 years ago. I mean, that's, so it's really, really good that we have antibiotics. It's really, really good that we have people who are working on vaccines, you know, but this other aspect of putting people on medications long-term without exploring other aspects of lifestyle intervention. We don't do that in animal agriculture. <laughs> we, 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 we don't try to make up for poor nutrition or poor housing or stressful situations with medications. I mean, we, we, we have the attitude that that's a tool that we use because things happen. So we want that tool available. Um, so that might be another difference to add into the mix between the, the disciplines. Um, so uh, again, you, you mentioned these as um, the components, you, you mentioned waste and power use and transport, but you also mentioned just the, the, the emotional, well, physical burnout of the professionals involved. Yeah. Um, so you, you had mentioned a positive example of your doctor. Can, can you go ahead and, yeah, I'm, I'm fascinated. What, yeah. So I, 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 I am a group of, we are medical anomalies. I'm a medical anomaly. I'm one of those people. There's a just paper published about this two weeks ago, actually of, in, in the literature, finally calling us out the lean mass hyperresponder phenomena. So we have fantastic uh, metabolic health numbers, except for one. LDL. So I have top of the pops. I have a CAC of zero. Um, I to a funny story. I asked for, so the, so I'm one of those people. Um, and I went to visit my family physician. I definitely got a family medicine specialist and I sat down and I was ready for the talk because my lab results were right in front of her. And, you know, I'd see, I, I'm a doctor too. I know what, I know the script. And so she turned to me and I will never forget this. And she turned to me and she said, I am a family doctor and I believe in the whole, I believe in whole person health. And that, that is a, that is a script that we are taught as family medicine to deescalate and bring someone into the fold. So she was using a statement that, that I use all the time. And that was just like the, the world lifting off your shoulders and opening the door to a conversation and saying, well, who are you? Tell me about you. Tell me, tell me how you got here. And so that was just like, that was the, um, those are the key, those are the key phrases. When you hear that, you think, okay, this is someone that wants to know me, know the depths of me and not look, look at me as a number. And so sure enough, she ordered, we talked about it and we've shared, and I've always said, give me feedback. And we've, I've given her some, I'm probably the first person like that in her practice. I'm sure everyone else that has a high LDL is not like me. She ordered a CAC on me, um, which they secretly do where I, where I get healthcare. And what's funny was I, I came in, they, they do them in the morning because they're very short exams. They can kind of squeeze, fit them in. So I walk in and the text like, you know, what do you, what's a person like you getting a CAC? And I knew what he meant because, and I didn't have to say it because I'm a doctor and I, and I was like, oh, I, because I know who you probably do CACs on. 
um, and they're not people like me. So it's probably done on people. It's probably done to keep the house from burning down instead of preventing the fire, right? Mm -hmm. So I get the CAC, it's happening, it takes like 10 minutes. The radiologist comes into the room and says, you, you've got a zero. Like, what are you doing here? And so I said, well, can I have my films please? And I do have it on my iPhone. I have the video on my iPhone to show my zero. But, but also I said, I said at the time, I said, well, get ready. You may be seeing more people like me come through here. Because as we have gone forward, this uh, looking at calcium in the coronary arteries is actually very helpful for people who, who may not be candidates or don't want to take a statin and have a questionable cholesterol result. So flash, fast forward to just recently, again, uh, my markers have been excellent except for one. Um, uh, she ordered a lipid NMR first time. Got, it was a send out test. They don't do it in house, but she did it. Got it, got it back, and again, same story. And again, ready for the speech. And this is all over email. And I, I said, hey, this is what's going on with me, and I feel comfortable where I'm at, and I want to do these things. And I hear, she wrote back and said, um, yes, I've discussed your case with a cardiologist, and we agree. Blew my mind. So two years ago, I mean, again, a family doctor going to the cardiologists, who notoriously, they're not, they're not Brett Schurz, I'll just call him out as a member of the tribe. They're not Brett Schurz. So two years later to say, yeah, we agree, um, which is amazing. So it just says, and you, you say to yourself, you know, and a, as a physician to have someone, I'll, as, I'll say as, as myself, I've had patients who are self-motivated. I mean, everyone wants that. A patient who is directed to be as healthy as possible, to do whatever they can, um, to listen, to take feedback, not to, not to drive the, the dialogue, but to listen and say, hey, I'll, I'll do whatever I want. If I'm doing something wrong, I want to know about it. And then come back and be, continue to be healthy. That's a dream patient. And I've had many of them. And actually, interestingly, in my past, when I was taking care of a lot of um, gay male patients, many with HIV, they were often many excellent patients. They were excellent patients because they were in a space where no one else wanted to listen. And so they got all the answers for themselves. And so they came back. They did great eating well, exercising, doing all the stuff that they could to maintain their health. And so I guess if you replicate that across a thousand, because there's, if there's one of me, there's a thousand other diabetics who don't have a relationship with a physician like that, who are not being listened to, who may be, brought, like you said, brushed aside. Um, and so if you replicate that, those patients, when they're listened to, become more enjoyable to work with. And those physicians say, wait a minute, like this is something I can do where I don't have to do very much. I don't have to order more medications for this person. Um, I just need to confirm that they don't have a rare genetic disorder, which is easy to do. And then they're off. Um, they're off to happy life. So, and then if you flash forward to some of the meetings that you and I have been at, you meet physicians at these meetings that are doing this work that have met these patients, somehow, somehow got into this work because they met a patient like me, um, have realized, wait a minute, like I can actually do what I wanted to do in medicine. It's not a futile, enterprise. Yeah. I, I think the phrase was pivotal patient that I heard to describe. Oh yeah. That's a good way one. to talk about it. Yeah. Um, and also then you hear the story specifically people yeah. like the, yeah. Eric Westman talked about that. He had Dr. Yeah. Unwin and others. Yeah. Um, yeah. Ted Naiman. There's, there's like you say, there's, there's a thousand I'm sure that yes. I only know of a handful. And if I don't mention them, it means nothing other than we haven't met yet. So please email me. Um, yes. Yes. Uh, 
so let's see. Um, okay, we've spoken a little about, oh, okay. What do you mean by transparency in healthcare? What does that mean? Um, you know, everyone should know, first of all, um, in the big picture, everyone, everyone as much as possible should know people's biases and where they come from, what, 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 what brings them to something. And so- Especially our own. Especially our own. And so, you know, in this space, you know, I, I always wanna look at, you know, what are people's conflicts of interest? How are they funded? And by the way, I should state mine. I have not received any funding honorary from any pharmaceutical device, diagnostic or food manufacturer, which is rare, very rare in medicine, never done a drug launch. My pharmacology professor famously said, remember this, remember this during the drug launch that you don't pay for until later in medical school. Um, or actually um, one of the best stories was first year medical school and my medical school in Arizona was a progressive place where they would bring in, believe it or not, bring in actual patients to talk to us, which was new, very new for her at that time. And uh, we were, we were in a bunch of us are sitting around interviewing a single patient and um, she was a diabetic. I still remember this. And she said, and we said, well, what do you pay for med? You know, she says, it's hard to do this because my medications cost so much. And we said, well, how much do they cost? And this is the nineties, 90, she said 90 bucks a month, which is like 500 in today's dollars. And the cost has gone up by 300%. And so we were like, as medical students, like that's a lot of money. <laughs> that's a lot of money for anyone. And so we said, well, why, why are they so expensive? And she said, look, look at your necks. And so what that meant was we were all wearing stethoscopes that were given to us by Eli Lilly. So famously, famously, Eli Lilly used to give every medical student in the United States a free stethoscope. Uh, and after that, I mean, after that, we sent all of ours to Central America. We donated them after that moment. AMSA had a, there was a program you could do that. And I was like, I don't want this anymore. So the, the things there were, the patients know, they know exactly what's going on. They're not, they, they're, they are much smarter than we give them credit for. So when we say transparency, when they walk into what looks like an advertisement for pharmacy, pharmaceuticals and devices to a doctor's waiting room, they know that they're paying for that. So there's that transparency about, well, you know, how does, how, how is my doctor being influenced by factors beyond science? Um, there's the transparency of your own information. So luckily now there's something called open notes so that when you do see a doctor, you, you can see what they wrote about you. Um, and then there's transparency and leadership. So, you know, medicine is often a top-down specialty um, and we learned in the, we learned many times over that doesn't work. It doesn't work. It kills people die. I mean, people, so many people died in the AIDS crisis because no one, no one was willing to say, Hey, maybe that's, maybe that's not the right thing to do. And so in transparency, it's, you know, where did you learn that? Um, how can you reach people that may be, uh, not having the right data and being open, you know, being open to new ideas, um, and um, that's, that's our future. And also being open to ideas outside your own space. So um, no, one, no one ever wants a doctor to be perfect, but they want them to learn from their mistakes quickly. And they want them to acknowledge their mistakes. And, and I would say a corollary, you know, if you've ever seen a patient that's been harmed by the medical profession, if they're ever interviewed or discussed, you know, guess what they always say? They always say, so that the next person doesn't go through this 
always. Mm-hmm. It's not about them in the end. One of the, one of the things I find powerful is the hope that comes from learning that there are options and that other people have benefited from effective lifestyle interventions, right? That, that, for example, type two diabetes is not a progressive, incurable, you know, uh, chronic disease in every case that there seems to be a growing body of information that says, if you take the appropriate intervention, you can see these symptoms reverse. And I guess I've heard physicians talk about deprescribing, mm-hmm. which I, I, I like mm-hmm. that phrase, that word. Mm-hmm. Um, and clearly that's got to be, um, well, you mentioned it before, the footprint of uh, the pharmaceutical industry. If you find that you need fewer medications, that's an environmental benefit. And, and I try to wrap all that up with this thought of when you improve your health, you are improving the world. Mm-hmm. Um, one, because I want people to realize their worth as individuals to the world. And number two, to recognize that that impact that we have by making those kind of changes then ripples out to we have no idea where. Um, And then there are these other aspects that we really haven't begun to really talk about yet, which is the environmental impact of being chronically ill. Um, So in all those ways, and and in many cases, it may be the most practical thing that we can do initially. You know, if, if we're chronically ill, we really can't take on a lot of these projects. Uh, we're, we're sort of burdened with that. In fact, it's lessening what we can realize in our own lives because of this. And it, it, it's not always possible. I understand. I don't mean to minimize the struggles that people are faced with, um, but I, I I do think that there's some value with that. And, and one of the images that I've used, which is going to lead me into something more about you, is that fraying rope that, you know, you start with a really stout, you know, braided hemp rope, but you begin to test all the strands by unraveling them and testing each one and they break and then they break. And pretty soon you only have one very thin strand in between. And that's like a lot of this narrative that we've been talking about in terms of the officially promoted healthy diet or, you know, the, the, the official approach to health being here, take this. Um, and when you pull those apart, you begin to find maybe there's not so much there, there. Um, but so you, you describe yourself as a visual storyteller. So let's spend a little time pulling that apart and looking at that and, and, and maybe um, something for people to, to look, think about. Uh, sure. I, let me talk about really one thing about the environment. I'm going to my controversy. This is my, I'm going to provide a controversial thought, Excellent. which is that the people in healthcare sustainability are amazing. They're very intelligent. They've done incredible work. Tommy Tan, interestingly, they're not on social media as much as this this tribe is, and I wish they were more. Um, however, when it comes to this part, 
and I look at some of their materials and I look at the part about the, the so-called sustainable diet, the quality of the work just drops to almost nil. I mean, and, I, and I have, it's, it's disappointing because um, everything else they have done is, I've, uh, is incredible. The stuff they're doing like um, around, you know, making sure facilities are built efficiently. And actually that's gonna change now because of viral penetration, all that kind of stuff. But, you know, making sure facilities are uh, compatible with the environment, all that stuff. But I, I feel like they've wandered into this space where they should, they, it's kind of, they shouldn't have wandered in there. And it's like, there's this big gaping hole of misinformation around what people should be eating to encourage this bigger issue of healthcare sustainability. And it's not, it's not borne out in the data. And I've seen many, many white papers where they've, they've cited like the Epic Oxford study, but they cited the wrong paper. They cited the paper, three papers before they, they showed there's no benefit from being a vegan from eating meat. But they cited the paper, two papers before that, where there was, there was a difference. So the, it, I would call it, I would call it, I would call it sloppy. Um, and I'm not saying the people are sloppy, I'm saying they're excellent people. Um, but it's about confronting your own biases. I've been at um, healthcare environmental sustainability conferences where the catering was pallets of Coca-Cola and pastries. And you talk, so let's talk visual storytelling. So I, I love images. I feel images tell a great story. And I think that the human spirit is best captured in images. I'm just not very good at writing them. So I, I, you know me, I take a camera wherever I go. So I've taken cameras to these meetings and I photograph the food and people look at me like, what are you doing? And um, I, all those pictures are publicly posted. And I say, this is the meeting that I was at. And I've shared it with the organizers of the meeting. And I remember once, um, again, I want to tell a positive story. I was at one of these meetings and I was my iPhone this time, taking a photo of the low fat uh, yogurt parfait, which what that means is it's coat, like dripping in sugar. You know it is. Mm. So I'm taking a photo and a woman walks up to me at this big conference center. And she says, well, what are you doing? I said, well, I'm taking a photo. And she said, why are you taking a photo? I said, I'm just really disappointed in the, the catering. And she said, why are you disappointed? I said, this is not healthy. This is, we're talking about people being able to achieve their life goals and good health and have a healthy environment. And this is doing the opposite. And so she said to me, well, I'm actually the wife of the organizer of this meeting. And I said, oh boy, here we go. And she said, you know, and I just want you to know that my husband would never stand for this. You know, he's very mm. adamant that we need to be healthy. And, and I'm, I thank you for bringing this to my attention. Mm. So, you know, some, I, I was taken from, it was a 180 for me. It was like amazing. Mm. And so again, it's like people are, the knowledge is out there and, you, and people have the ability, like these are committed. So I wanna say these scientists, they're all committed to do the right thing. And sometimes they don't know what that is. And, you know, I've had other conversations with people say, well, I could just never have meat at this meeting. And I just say, well, but you're willing to have Coca-Cola, like sugar Coca-Cola. Um, and by the way, guess what happens when the meeting's over? Where does that Coca-Cola go? In the garbage. Hmm. So you've actually contributed to the food waste. I mean, there's just like just pallets of like pastries that are thrown away. And so um, I love the idea of being a positive deviant. And part of that is taking images and not to call people out, but the, the act of taking a photo started a conversation. Yeah. 
mm -hmm. um, to say, I just think, say, this is an interesting image at a place like this. And I'm so happy because we had a great conversation afterwards. And I walked away and I thought, wow, if I ever, if I ever thought that someone in this space is ignorant or is not curious, boy, was I wrong. And that was I, good for me. And, and for me as well to hear it, I've seen equally disappointing food served at forage conferences, for example, where the only, you know, animal product anywhere near this is maybe, you know, the little mini moose of, you know, half and half, right? Whoa. And, and maybe the cream cheese in the middle of the Danish, Whoa. right? Um, and I'm looking around going, that's amazing. Hmm. Um, and I, I remember listening to a gentleman talk about the the farming of you know the the settlement and um, farming in North Dakota, and what he said was you know the 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 people that came first all they knew how to do is what they knew how to do, and that was based on their experience in Europe or maybe Eastern U.S. Completely different than North Dakota, but nobody had farmed in North Dakota before. Mm -hmm. So they didn't have the right equipment. They didn't have the right varieties. They didn't have fertilizer to replace. You know, they didn't have so many things. But we're talking about 1890, you know, to, you know, for the next almost century. Um, and hopefully, 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 when we know better, we can do better. But then there are impediments to that. There are things that we've spoken about already that the generational learning, you know, my professor taught me this mm -hmm. and now my position is in some way tied up with being known as his graduate student. And, oh, by the way, that association led to my career. And now, you know, it's, it's not just objectively evaluating evidence. It's now weighing these sorts of decisions very carefully and and it's not coming from a position of judgment although it may sound that way for me i'm just so impressed when someone like professor noakes can say i was wrong which i think Amazing. it really it goes against skill. human nature yeah i've seen i've seen in my career and not even the nutrition space i've seen amazing i've seen physicians who have been on not million dollar, but billion dollar projects maybe that failed and walked into the room and say that didn't work. So we're gonna do something else. Amazing, mm -hmm. amazing. I mean, that's, that's counter to everything you're supposed to do as a profession. And in that moment, if you're a as me, a junior physician, you're looking at that and saying, that's what I wanna be like. I wanna be able to do that and admit I made a mistake and do something different. And I think it's, it's, it's hard. It's, I, you and I both know this, it's some people are not, it's not in there. They're not wired to be able to do it. And um, also just to respect physicians and clinicians, that's not what people expect of them. They're expected mm -hmm. to be an Oracle on the mountain and um, the pressure is, in, is immense. And how do you give people, and that's our, your and my both job is like to give people that space if there's a possibility that, they're, that they are able to go back home and say, maybe that wasn't the right thing and come back and do it differently and realize like you're the same amazing person you ever were. Just because you change your mind uh, doesn't mean there's anything wrong with you. And um, that's it. Yeah, yes. Absolutely. Um, there's a lot of ways we could spiral out from there, but absolutely. It, it's part of being human and we're all that. Uh, so um, 
yeah, we, we need to, what is it? Just because we've failed in something doesn't make us a failure, right? It just means we tried something that didn't work. Okay. That's how we learn. Most of us, hopefully, um, yeah. you know, if we, if I, I, I know the pe- I know of people who will say things like, you know, I've farmed for 25 years or whatever the number is, you know, and I've got 25 years of experience. And it's like, if you look exactly, no, you've done the same thing for 25 years. <laughs> That's, you know, how, how did you kind of learn from that, adapt, you know, then apply, then learn, then adapt, then apply, then learn, then it, that's sort of progressing. The other is just doing the same thing for 25 years. That's the, very different. And again, not to, not to minimize the experience of someone who's actually farmed for 25 years because they've been pretty challenging years yeah. lately. But, um, you know, the, the we've always done it this way is a very dangerous um, statement. And, and usually- yeah, I have to say, I mean, I have to go, I just to, I want to periodically, you know, give kudos to healthcare as, as it is doing for us today. And I was thinking about this, that yes, it's, it's, it's hard when it's not curious, but, but in a way that that wiring of healthcare is very protective at the same time think about the hydro- hydroxychloroquines mm-hmm. and other remedies that have been passed to me by some people that are not based in science. And thank goodness healthcare is a place where we prevent the wrong thing from happening as much as we promote the right thing from happening. So, yeah. So um, that, part of this, that, that part of healthcare, we do it this way, we're this thorough, ha- thank goodness. And so I would say this is a good problem to have. I would much rather healthcare. The, the challenge in in most of not all of healthcare is that it adopts things too quickly, actually. Mm. There are medications and technologies that it takes on too quickly because it's there and it gets paid for and all this kind of stuff. And it, it was not a good use of funds. So mm. it's the, um, interestingly, healthcare does not have a problem adopting new things. It just doesn't adopt them. It just doesn't adopt the things that are often best for health because it doesn't get reimbursed that way. So if you take that same attitude, that same pioneering attitude, this new great thing, and bring it over here, and it's actually a tool for sustainability of the system. So again, in the US, carbon emissions of healthcare, 10%, UK, 3%. Hmm. So if you think about it, I, I think carbon is like a currency. You can actually boil everything. I mean, I think I can, you can almost take everything down to bits of carbon and say, you know, you should have this much health for the, this much carbon. Um, to an extent. So if we can actually pollute the atmosphere less and be healthier, I think that's a win-win. Mm-hmm. Um, we don't want to pollute the atmosphere less and be unhealthy. So mm-hmm. if everyone went to artificial meat, which may, may, may take less carbon to produce, but may result in an unhealthy person, which actually blows out carbon use from disease, that's not a good thing either. So um, if, if we go there and we take that attitude of innovation, and I think what's exciting in this new era, so a few things are, I think people learned this last year to look at literature more carefully, which is good. I think we have a new changing political climate in Washington, D.C. that's going to look at climate more seriously. And I believe, even though some people in this administration have old world views about diet, I would much rather have an administration that doesn't know science than an administration that doesn't believe in science. Mm. So 
we have administration that believes in science and wants to know what's what what the incoming administration. So you can imagine a world where we look at the overall climate situation, which is dire in the US. We know healthcare is a large contributor contributor to it and it needs to reduce. And people like you and me and our patients who are getting better and healthier are gonna say, hey, there's there's a better way. I don't need to use as much of you uh, to be as healthy as I need to be. How awesome is that? It's a win-win. Yeah. Um, and, and again, one of the things that if we would focus on the h- human flourishing, I yeah, really can you, believe- Can you talk about that? Because I remember, so I just wanna say from our car ride, I still remember our dinner, our fabulous steak dinner in Denver. And you made this very prophetic statement. I remember as we were pulling into the Gaylord Rockies, would you repeat that for the audience? Cause it re- still stuck with me. As best as I can remember, it goes, some, it goes something like you can have one of two primary approaches to solving issues. One is you can be primarily focused on uh, maximizing human flourishing or you can be focused on minimizing human impact. Yes. And if you focus on the human flourishing side, you will get to minimizing human impact because some of these issues can only be addressed by prosperous, stable societies. Um, If you go at it from the other viewpoint, you won't get to maximizing human flourishing. Uh, You'll be willing to accept things that actually impede human flourishing. So putting the world on a macrobiotic diet, for example, in the name of achieving, that's going to increase the number of people who suffer from essential micronutrient deficiencies, for example. Um, You know, 45% of humanity consumes less, uh, less than a thousand kilowatt hours of electricity per year. That's a large North American refrigerator. Wow. The population of India that has no access to electricity is greater than the entire population of the United States. Wow. Which means that all the things that we in North America in 2020 frequently can take for granted, you know, um, they've never experienced it. And then we talk about how, how do you, how do you transmit vaccines that require refrigeration when you don't have that sort of secure, stable, um, supply chain in place to do that work? Um, and, 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 and so by help, by focusing on those issues, I think we could have the opportunity to achieve this improvement in the conditions and flourishing of human beings. For example, if you don't have light at night when it gets dark, what's your scholastic performance likely to be? And right. it just right. those, those sorts of things that I, I've become aware of, uh, you know, what a quarter of children globally five years or under are stunted. And that's not just, that's not only height, that's cognitive development. 
Um, and that's a lifetime decrement that then has about an 11% GDP drag projected for sub-Saharan Africa. When we talk about sustainable development, these issues then come into play. So, um, yeah, the, the focus on human flourishing versus the, you know, maximizing human flourishing versus minimizing human impact. I think, I think that should be the trailer of this podcast. And I think you should put that up on your, put it as a graphic. Cause it's I think that's a very, very important statement. And I think um, we, we bring it back to sustainability. If we thought that way, we would think about how do we maximize the flourishing of the, of the 15 million people that are healthcare workers. And at the same time, not, not, not um, at the expense of the people they take care of. And, you know, there's another expression. I remember when I was in, I was in the UK a while ago and there's an expression, they said, healthcare should face the community, not the hospital. And in England, which is a socialized system, they still, even, it doesn't matter where you are, people worship the, the hospital is a community hub. It's, you know, people work, it's like a temple almost. And so that's the struggle. How do you get healthcare to focus on the needs of the community versus itself? Because um, the community wants to focus on healthcare, so I think I think that statement, your statement, is for me. That's like the takeaway for everyone. It's like if we think about how to support humanity, everything else will follow. Versus minimizing impact, um, which is making trade-offs, um, trade-off after trade-off after trade-off, and then what what do we have left? Yes. Thank you. So thank you for I that. I should hire you for this job. Oh, that's, right. uh, <laughs> no, that's not going to happen. <laughs> you no. just fine. <laughs> Thank you very much. So um, people can find you. Um, you you do tweet. You are on Twitter. A lot of visuals. Uh, a lot Ted of visual. A lot of visuals. A lot of visual communication. So I, I I'm at Twitter. And I do have a blog. So um, yeah. So I I try. I'm trying to keep. I try keep i'm not trying to be there are amazing people on social media i have to say um that are truly thought leaders and i and i don't plan to be one of those people in this space but i do follow them regularly and um uh yeah i mean i just i'm, I'm very hyper local these days um which is great because i'm in a great place and i'm looking forward to the future and i think that our collaborations like this are i'm excited about or the future i've always been the family doctor that wants to know more about, you know, architecture, farming, um, transportation, um, because that's 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 what we're supposed to do as health. So, I'm I'm happier in my life. I'm happy I got to know I've gotten to know you, and um, I just love the journey that we get to be on to figure out like what can we do better. Exactly, exactly. A good question for us all to be asking yes. ourselves. And if you come back with nothing, then I think we're going to sit down and have yes. <laughs> a little deeper conversation. Yeah, I'm sure you'll come up with something. Yes, we'll come up with something. Always. <laughs> maybe, maybe not. <laughs> Thank you, Ted. Thank you, my friend. I look forward to the next time we can get together for one of those steak dinners and, and continue the conversation. Um, yes. When we are full of antibodies, we will be right there with each other. Excellent. Excellent. Um, thank you so much, Ted. Thanks for joining us. And I look forward to whatever comes next. Sounds good. See you soon, my friend.